Proverbs 22, uh, verse 14, the mouth of an adulteress, or it could be in your translation, a strange woman. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Now, this is a warning to young men to beware of uh, adulterous women and uh, not to give their strength. One of the reasons for that is because, remember, marriage is a picture of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we are to be a a spotless bride uh, that is presented to Christ in glory. And here the book of Proverbs is uh, warning young men about be careful of the friendships that you make, but especially the most important friendship that you'll ever have in this world. And that is, of course, the friendship uh, that you uh, young men will have with your wife and you girls with your husband. That is uh, the ordinary calling for most people is that uh, one day you will uh, marry and you want to. uh, The lesson today and the important lesson is to marry in the Lord. Why is this so significant? Why is it so important? Now, uh, this is not a lesson just simply for the kids, uh, for the unmarried like myself. Really, uh, it is an important lesson for us all, because one of the cases I'm going to make in our scripture lesson today is the case that this is really a corporate issue. This is not just an individualistic issue between two people and some kind of private decision between two people alone. But this affects the family. This affects the church and the church and the family have a say in the matter um, that we have a say to protect the integrity of the church, the integrity of our fellowship. And I'm going to try and make that case here uh, for us. So. Proverbs here, uh, you can look in other places such as Proverbs 5, warn young men uh, to be careful of the kind of relationships that they have and not to fall into illicit relationships with uh, women who are uh, not a part of the covenant. It tells young men that don't, you know, don't uh, cause your streams to flow abroad, but, you know, stay at home, marry in the Lord. Um, rejoice in the life of your youth. Um, these are these are the commands that we find throughout Proverbs. Now, why does the book of, of Proverbs emphasize uh, this so much? Well, you can really go all the way back to Genesis to see why this is, because you'll remember that when our first parents fell into sin and they were cast forth from the garden, the promise of salvation was given to Adam and Eve That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But also within that context, we learned that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that there would be this enmity between those who are in covenant with the Lord through Christ and those who are outside of the covenant. And one of the problems historically that the people of God have continued to face is the problem of intermarrying with those who weren't in covenant with the Lord and weren't turning to the Lord necessarily. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses told the people of God this in verse 16. And you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods. Now, take some of his daughters, meaning the unbelievers daughters for your sons, meaning the sons of the covenant and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So he's saying, don't allow your sons to be intermarrying with the surrounding unbelieving nations. 
Now, this has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing in itself to do with nationality. We can look at the book of Ruth to see that. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's of a different ethnic background. She's of a different nation. And yet uh, she is a godly woman and she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to the land and she serves the Lord and she marries in the Lord by marrying Boaz. And there was nothing unlawful with Boaz marrying Ruth, even though Ruth ethnically was a was a Moabite. Same with Moses. Zipporah is not of Israel, but yet she is a godly woman. In fact, she shows herself more faithful than Moses in one instance where she circumcises the boys because Moses failed to do it. And she was keeping covenant with God better than Moses was. God almost put Moses to death. So this has nothing to do with ethnicity, has nothing to do with mere nationality. It has everything to do with covenant and the covenant relationship with God, no matter what ethnicity you are and no matter what nationality you are. Better to marry outside your ethnic group, somebody who is in covenant with God, than to marry within your ethnic group, somebody who does not know the Lord. So uh, this is the warning why it's of such concern that they not intermarry with the nations around them. It's because the other nations are serving other gods. And the, and, the, and he, Moses is concerned that the people will leave the Lord, their God, for other gods uh, in the coming generations if they intermarry with the Canaanite nations. So, again, in Deuteron- that's in Exodus 34. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, we see that the people are commanded by God to go and enter into the promised land and they're just to destroy the nations before them. Now, the reason for that is these nations are under the judgment of God. God has given them time to repent. They are unwilling to repent. And so God is bringing an eschatological judgment uh, upon them. It's a it's a type of second coming, if you will. It's a type of the coming of Christ when Christ will shut the door on grace. And those who are outside the door, the foolish virgins remain outside and under the judgment of God. So here he is saying to go into the nation, go into the land And subdue the land, but be careful because there will be these other nations that serve other gods. And if you begin to live among them and then you intermarry with these idolaters, then what happens? Well, then the the covenant is jeopardized by the apostasy. And notice here that the command that Moses gives, he gives primarily to the parents and the leaders of the church. They're the ones who are responsible to oversee that their sons and their daughters do not marry the idolaters. So here I think we need to see the emphasis is for us as adults, parents, church elders, even the congregation here at Covenant at large. We have a responsibility to see that our sons and daughters marry in the Lord. This is what scripture commands. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse thirty nine puts it clearly that widows Uh, A wife is bound to her husband so long as that husband lives. But once the husband dies, she's free to marry. And notice here, she's free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord. So it doesn't mean uh, that parents get to say who it is (laughs) that they marry. Don't worry, kids. It's uh, you, you. It says she may marry whom she wishes so long as he's in the Lord. Okay, so everybody understands here uh, that. That it's not a marriage against the consent, 
uh, of the woman, but uh, with her consent, her desire, marry whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. So by way of application, parents, grandparents, those who are my fellow elders, uh, we need to reinforce these lessons with our children, our grandchildren, our teenagers, young people here today are singles like myself. This is a lesson for me that. Uh, so I'm hoping that if I should be ever be swayed to date somebody outside the Lord, that you would come to me and say, you know, she's not a Christian uh, pastor. You can't do that. So it's a it's a lesson for us all uh, that we we would. Um, you, n- you never know. Those of you who are married. Uh, Maybe that in the next decade you find yourself as a widow. Maybe, you know, you're still young enough. You're thinking maybe about remarriage. This could become an issue for you as as well. And so maybe uh, those of you who have older parents, you may have to go to your parents about this. Um, It it has not been um, unheard of that uh, Christians, parents who walked in the Lord may in their old age wanting that companionship again. Uh, are tempted to marry outside the Lord just to have that companionship. And their adult children have to come to them and say, you know, Mom, we don't think this guy is really a walking Christian here. Um, So this is, don't think that this doesn't involve all of us here. One of the things also, it means that we need to teach ourselves and our young people that faith comes before romance and emotions. Faith needs to come before romance and emotions get involved. We need to teach our kids to keep the emotions in check and to make certain that the more important things are there first. And it also means we do need to provide oversight regarding their relationships. Um, I don't see, based on what the Bible says about the requirements for marriage, why anybody should even be dating a non-believer. I mean, what is dating for? The reason we date is ultimately for marriage. To see if we we should marry or not, and if if the scripture already forbids the marriage as it is, then there's really no reason to be a reg, to be dating a, a non-believer. In my own opinion, I know there are some who try to make the case for evangelistic dating, but I just don't think it's wise. Um, I'll have more to say about this when we get to the applications later in the message. Parents and grandparents and and, uh, elders, we have a responsibility to see that our sons and our daughters uh, do not marry outside of the faith, but provide some supervision in dating or courtship, whatever you prefer to call it. Um, Parents need to get to know potential suitors, uh, need to know something of their testimony and their walk with the Lord. Um, You might say, well, what if my daughter is of college age? What if she's in college? My mentor, uh, Pastor Larry Miniger at Lake Sherwood OPC, suggests um, that uh, his daughter date whom she wants on the first date. And if he wants a second date, then he needs to call him. And so he would allow his daughters, if a guy asked her that she could go out with him. But if he wanted a second date, then he needed to talk to dad and to dad would lay the ground rules out for what he expected in terms of behavior and to get to know the young man and where he stood with the Lord. Um, Elders in the church as overseers, we have a job to maintain the unity and the purity of the congregation. 
And and I want to make the case that marriage is not just a private contract between two people. I think that's the way we in the uh, atomistic, individualistic West tend to look at marriage. But marriage really is a covenantal affair. It affects the whole covenant community. It cannot be viewed just simply some kind of private contract between two people. That's why I think, you know, there are supposed to be guests at the wedding ordinarily that that there's a there. You're you know, you are there to observe vows, commitment to the Lord. It's a covenant oath that's being taken to God, not to each other. The, the oath the, and the vows that are being administered in the wedding ceremony are, are being taken to God and the congregation serves as witnesses. This is also, by the way, you cannot go to a homosexual wedding. Because that, that is not a marriage in the sight of God. So you, you if, if uncle so and so who's gay is having a, a so-called wedding, you can't go because that. Your, 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 your role there is not as a passive observer. You're there as a part of that ceremony to observe the vows. And you, you, you can't do that. Um, so just in case you're wondering you know, where that, that puts, I think, the Christian, uh, I think you, axiomatically you cannot be involved because otherwise you're participating in, in an oath-taking that is unlawful and, and you may not participate. So um, it is, it's not a private issue uh, simply between uh, two individuals here. The church has the right to protect her purity morally, spiritually and theologically. Um, the scripture teaches that God requires his people to marry only other believers. And therefore, the church has to hold that standard. We, that is the standard for this church, that our members marry only in the Lord. And if we allow our, our members to marry non-believers, then we as elders are compromising the integrity of this church. We're compromising the authority of scriptures. Um, we're promoting lawlessness among the people of God because it's then seen that the session doesn't uphold God's standard. And if this person can marry an unbeliever, then others may want to do so. Paul speaks about the leaven of sin, that sin has a way of leavening and once that compromise is made, then it becomes easier to make it again. So this is a sin that affects and contaminates the whole covenant community if it is left unchecked. And you can look in various places in the Bible and, and see the corporate nature of, of sin. And here again, in the West, we tend to think of sin as just a personal issue between you and God. But the Bible doesn't always see it that way. In Joshua 7, you'll remember the sin of Achan, where he um, hides within his tent the articles that were under the ban. And you remember that the judgment is not just on Achan and his family, but it's on the whole covenant community. They lose to little Ai in battle because of this compromise. And Joshua falls on his face and he says, Lord, what's going on? Why aren't we having greater success? And the answer is, well, you're permitting sin. And Joshua doesn't know it. It's hidden from Joshua, isn't it? But it doesn't matter that it's hidden from Joshua. The, the point is that somebody within the covenant community has compromised the integrity of the community. And the whole community is suffering. Think about that. There were men from other families that died in battle that died needlessly because of the sin of Achan. 
And you think about the lack of success that sometimes we in the Western church are having. You have to wonder, is it because of God's displeasure that there's all this unchecked sin in, in the church and compromises being made? Known or unknown to the elders. So Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians to watch out for sin because a little leaven, he compares sin to leaven. He says a little leaven leavens the whole of the loaf. Meaning a little bit of sin in one part of the congregation can end up affecting the whole of the church. In Revelation 2.18, Christ said that he had this against the church, that they were tolerating false teaching. You can look at at a positive example with Phineas. Phineas is praised, you'll remember, because he disciplined, i.e. killed, the young Israelite who took a wife from the Midianites before the whole congregation. Remember, he's, you know, trooping her through the camp on the way to his tent. And Phineas sees this and he grabs a spear and he kills both of them. And because of that courageous action, the plague that God had brought on the church was stopped. Numbers chapter 25. So we need to realize we are also one body in Jesus Christ. And when one member sins, the whole of the body is affected. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The whole body is integrated. And so the sin of any one of us has an effect on Others, you know, boys and girls, you experience this in the kitchen. I bet you you accidentally while cooking, you touch the hot eye on the stove and you pull your hand back. And, and what happens? Your whole body reacts, doesn't it, to that that touch? It's not just that your hands says ouch, your mouth says ouch. Right. Your, your feet go into action because now you've got to walk over to the sink and put cold water on and get some ice on that thing. So the rest of your body gets really focused on 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 those fingers that just got scorched on the on the oven. And and sin can be like that fire that that burns and the whole body is supposed to cry out against that. The, The trouble is, in America, we elevate individualism and autonomy and we need to guard ourselves from our own worldview in this culture that we live in. Marrying unbelievers affects us all. And it remains the business of the church and the overseers of the church to see that the marriages within their membership are biblical marriages. One of the first things that we do before I perform a, a wedding is that we have the couple go before the elders to make certain they meet the biblical qualifications for marriage. And that way it's not left up to me. It's a judgment of the session to see whether that th- th- those Two people are are both believers and that it, that there's no unlawful divorces and other things that need to be dealt with, um, that we make sure that they are marrying according to the Bible. Uh, when you look at the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, one of the things that we see um, is that it wasn't long before they didn't. Know the Lord, we're told that within one generation of Joshua and all the elders who knew Moses personally, there was this apostasy that affected Israel. And one of the things we don't want to be said here at Covenant is that uh, after our youngest children who are with us now, you take our youngest kids here after they die. 
that there not be a generation after them here at this church that don't know the Lord. And this means, among other things, that we have to marry only in the Lord. And not only do you kids need to learn that lesson that you marry in the Lord, but you need to see to it that your children and your grandchildren who are yet to be born marry in the Lord. See, it's not enough for you to apply this scripture to your life and be faithful to it. You have to pass it on to the generations that follow you. Um, teenagers, you, you who are 17, 18, 19, 20 plus years old. Look, the eight, the nine, that 10 year old, 11 year old girls are watching you. You have a responsibility to, you know, date with integrity, to marry in the Lord. You're having an influence on on those that are younger than you. And you want that to be an edifying influence. You don't want it to be a sinful influence. You want it to be a good one. Now, the tragic consequence for the church, for its disobedience, um, is long noted in the Bible. In Joshua 23, for example, verse 12 and following, because of intermarriage with non-believers, with idolaters, the Lord's blessing was removed, we are told in the scriptures, from the children of Israel. They were chastened, they were chastised by these nations and buffeted them. And they would have to cry out to the Lord. But it was because of their apostasies that these things fell on them. In Judges chapter 3, for example, verses 1 to 8, we are told that God left these nations in the land, that is the unbelieving nations, to test the hearts of his people. And it may be that one day the Lord providentially tests your heart. How committed are you to Jesus Christ? Can you be swayed to, to leave the commandment of Jesus Christ to disobey and marry somebody who's not a believer? And the trouble is that the Israelites often did disobey. They intermarried and the consequence is that their hearts were led astray. You think of no one greater than Solomon and yet Solomon's heart, we are told in 2 Kings chapter 11. One of the sad chapters of the Bible, Solomon's heart, we are told, turned away from the Lord. Now, I do think that Solomon was a believer ultimately and and will be in heaven. But he had a tragic falling away. And I don't think recovered till the very end of his life. Um, this is, think about who Solomon was, lest you think you're strong. This is a man who had had enough faith to pray for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. This is a man who was used of the Lord to build the temple. The very image of Christ in the Old Testament. This is the man whom Almighty God appeared to twice in his life. Um, this is the man to whom the whole world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, of Queen Sheba being one of them. This was the man who was himself a type of Christ. This is the one of whom Solomon said, one greater than Solomon stands among you. I mean, Solomon was truly great. And we have the same nature as Solomon and we're not immune to such temptations. And what happened? Well, I think what happened was that Solomon compromised. He married many women, most of whom were unbelievers. And I think for a while he was able to kind of withstand. He, he allowed his wives to go and make their offerings to their gods. And he kept himself at the temple. 
And I think he was able to hold his wives off for many years. But eventually we, we know he caved. He began at, later in his life to offer sacrifices to those gods. And I've thought about that. And the Bible's not explicit how it happened, but I couldn't help but think that it somehow had to do with, shall I say, the nag, <laughs> the nagging. Why don't you ever come with me? Why? Why do you always go to, only to your God? How come? You make us come to stand in the court of the Gentiles at your temple, but you never, ever come and offer a sacrifice at our altar. And you deal with that for years and you multiply that by hundreds of women. And I suppose that what had happened over time is that he just got tired of having to, to fight that off. And we don't know. There's a little bit of speculation there, but, you know, you just try and. Use a little imagination as to humanly what, what would have happened over time where a man who was faithful, committed to God, finds himself late in life offering strange sacrifices. And you think it, it had to be the influence of his wives over time just wore him down. And that's what does happen, boys, is that if you marry a woman who's not a believer, she's going to wear you down over time. That that. We are creatures of communion, which means that we do get influenced by others, positively or negatively. All of us are influenced by others. And there, there's no closer neighbor you'll ever have than that of your spouse. And this is why it's so important that you have a spouse who is committed to Jesus Christ, who will be a good influence for you. Uh, and. And won't lead you astray. Now, there are situations that the Bible recognizes where, you know, for example, in the first century where Paul comes into town, he preaches the gospel and only one spouse ends up believing. And those are hard situations where you're already married, but only one of you comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and you know, Paul here is making it clear you don't divorce your unbelieving spouse over that issue. You, in fact, you stay with them if they're willing for you to stay in the marriage. And because Paul says, who knows, you may influence them for good. It's not that you entered into that marriage unlawfully. What happened was you were both idolaters. And by God's grace, one of you has come to the truth. And now wives, you know, live out the gospel before your husband in such a way that you can win him without a word. Husbands, deal patiently with your wife as a weaker vessel that through your example, your love for her, your sacrifice for her, she might be brought to faith in Christ as well. But here we're dealing with a situation where we're being warned, don't enter into a situation like that. In Ezra chapter nine, the people of God had returned from captivity after 70 years of excommunication from the promised land. And the very sins that we're considering here this afternoon were the sins that they returned to. That the first sins that the people returned to was they began to intermarry with those who were serving other gods. And so in Ezra chapter 10, they had to repent and put away their foreign wives. Also in Nehemiah 13, which is the same period as Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah should always be viewed together. Uh, in Nehemiah 13, the tragic consequences of those intermarriages were seen in the children. The children, we are told in Nehemiah 13, did not know the language of Judah, which means they didn't know the language of the Bible. 
and they knew the language of Ashdod. And so the consequences were showing up radically within that generation that had returned. You know, it was the sin of marrying non-believers and the eventual apostasy of God's people that led them into Babylonian captivity. And now what are they doing? They're repeating the mistakes of their fathers. And, and that's what Ezra and Nehemiah, that's why they had to take such radical action. Because remember that the, the return of the Jews to Israel is still in its embryonic stages. And if the foundation is faulty, all is going to go wrong. Now, I want to say by way of application, we have no reason to believe that Satan has changed his tactics. He still finds the opportunity of marriage as a potential point of vulnerability in seeking to compromise the church and eventually destroy the church. And therefore, we have to have the same vigilance that Ezra and Nehemiah had to guard ourselves from that sin. Let me bring to you some practical questions maybe that arise in your mind. Question number one, what if a potential suitor of my daughter claims an interest in Christ, but the father and the mother have doubts about that profession of faith? What do you do if one of your kids is interested in another person and they claim, as many do in the South, that they are a Christian, but you have doubts as to their possession of Christ truly? I would I would recommend that you not proceed toward marriage. Um, that which is not a faith is sin and marriage is too important of a decision to enter without faith and confidence. If the young man is a believer, he will bring forth the fruit eventually. If he's simply playing a religious game in order to get your daughter, he will likely fall away. Once the dating relationship is ended. And I think you ought to wait for evidence. Give it time. Don't proceed towards courtship or dating until you're satisfied as to his qualification as a believer. Question number two. What if I, as a single person, am in love with one who is not a believer or one who I'm unsure whether they are a believer? And here again, I would give, I think, a similar answer. We cannot allow our emotions to trump the obedience to God's word. And therefore, it's important for us as singles to avoid emotional entanglements with those that we know are not Christians. Emotional love is not to be interpreted as a sign from God that you should proceed to marriage. I've had that said to me before. And I've gone to people and I said, look, you, you cannot be doing this. You it wasn't that he said he was a Christian and and uh, and anybody else had doubts. It's, I, I, you know, one case that comes to mind very early when I was still in seminary, he made no claims to be a Christian and she knew he made no claims to be a Christian. But she said she insisted but this is the person uh, that God wants me to marry. I feel God is calling me to marry. And what you're feeling is maybe emotions for them. And I don't want to downplay that. It may be genuine love for that person. But our, our love for Christ has always got to be above. Um, and we, we cannot say that we love God and go against what God's word says. You know, um, I heard the story one time 
Jay Gresson Machen was a bachelor for a long time. And in Ned Stonehouse's biography, the only romantic interest that is ever brought forth in Machen's life was with a, a woman that was a friend of the family. And the two families were very close. They were very similar in social status. She was very intellectual. They came from an upper class family. He came from an upper class family. And in many ways, it looked, you know, like a, a good match. But um, she was Unitarian. And Machen tried. Um, I think he wrote, corresponded. Um, he, uh, you know, probably brought her to church and such. But she was never persuaded. And Machen had to break it off. Machen knew he could not go forward, um, you know, with, with such a person. If he was going to stay truly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's the, that is the, the perspective we have to keep. It's not always easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But um, Christ must always come first. And we can't say, well, this is whom God wants me to marry because that's the way I feel about them. Question three, what if my child, my young person, uh, is interested in marrying an Arminian? This is a little bit trickier. It's a harder question. This Bible teaches that we have to marry only in the Lord. And there are genuine believers who are Arminians. Now, some are by way of commitment to such doctrines. Others simply by ignorance. They just have never been taught anything else. And so this is, a, I think, a case-by-case situation. And it may depend on a variety of factors. Um, It may be that you have a son and a daughter who is interested in an Arminian. Now, here again... um, Let's say that it's the daughter who's interested in an Arminian boy. Uh, he comes from an Arminian church. It might be a discipleship opportunity. OK, so it may be that you kind of hit the pause button on dating. But you said, listen, you're welcome to hang around the house. And I'd be glad as a father to sit down with you and talk about some of the differences that our church has with your church and why I think it's important. And so it may be through that process that just he comes to understand the doctrines of grace better and then is a suitable candidate for for the daughter. Um, If it's the other way around, it may be you you hold a a, maybe take a similar tack. But keep in mind, too, that if it's the boy who's interested in Arminian girl, um, women will tend to follow. If if the man will take the lead, the woman does tend oftentimes to follow. And so it may be that uh, you may find that even maybe an easier situation there. But you just have to handle it with wisdom. The scriptures don't give us tons and tons and tons of rules. We have to keep that in mind, that we're, we're called to exercise wisdom in life. And uh, that be glad about that, because otherwise your Bible would be, you know, this big. I mean, you know, um, it's, it's big enough uh, right now. And so, you know, wisdom is required. I think it is to be preferred that you share a common commitment to the doctrines of grace and the same outlook on the sacraments, uh, on soteriology, on ecclesiology, those kind of things there. But again, we don't want to go beyond the scriptures. What about Roman Catholics? Question four. I think here the confession is certainly not unclear and the answer by the confession standards is no, that reformed Christians may not. Now you say, how come? 
Aren't there true believers in the Roman Catholic Church? I do think there are. Um, There are some. Here's the problem, though. The, The Roman Catholic Church has become too corrupt in doctrine and practice to justify such a marriage. And I do think it would be an unequal yoking based upon the official teachings of the two churches. And that the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is not consistent with the gospel. It is another gospel. Now, there are true believers who have a genuine, true faith in Christ, despite the official teachings of the church. That is, there are people in the Roman Catholic Church who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, even though the church says that's not how you're justified. But still, nevertheless, I think the answer, I think the Westminster divines are right on that. I think the answer is no. I know your pastor uh, will not perform such a a ceremony uh, unless the bride or the groom is willing to make a commitment to the reformed faith. What about Mormons? Fifthly, Mormons are Jehovah's Witnesses. Again, uh, the answer is no, even more so uh, than than what was just said about Roman Catholics. Um, hard to believe um, if what is true about Roman Catholicism leads to a no answer, uh, how much more no with Mormons? I think the, the deficiencies among Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, are even greater than among Roman Catholics. Um, Calvin called the Roman Catholic Church our sickly mother. You have to remember, we came from the Roman Catholic Church, okay? We, she, she is our mother, in a sense, historically. We have come out from the Roman Catholic Church and... By calling her sickly, Calvin was acknowledging there's some life there. Okay, but it is it is bad. Um, It is not a healthy life. It's it is much more like a hospice uh, patient. The Mormon church is not a church. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are not a true church. Um, And so the answer there is no. Number six. how do I monitor dating and courtship activities of grown children who are in college or beyond? I do think there is some parental authority and wisdom that needs to be applied, um, even if the student is uh, not located within the premises of the house. I think parents would be wise uh, to counsel and to be involved in keeping up with their young people as to who they're dating and to lay down the ground rules um, especially for daughters that are in college as to what is expected of the young men. Go back maybe to the Minigar rule that he employs uh, there. Number seven, what if one is already disobeyed and married an unbeliever? Uh, Should they divorce that spouse as we find in Ezra chapter 10? I think the answer there is no. I go back to 1 Corinthians 7, 13. If the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, then you must not divorce them. Uh, This is the clear apostolic command, and I think it needs to take precedence over the extraordinary historical narrative of Ezra uh, chapter 10. Let me bring you to a conclusion here. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, the Apostle Paul plainly states that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. It's an antithetical relationship, he says. Paul says, what does righteousness have in common with lawlessness, light with darkness, Christ with Belial, the temple of God with idols? God is holy, holy, holy. 
And we as his people are not to touch that which is unclean. Likewise, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that marriage is a redemptive picture of our union with Jesus Christ. And when one marries an unbeliever, you have distorted that picture and that relationship between Christ and his people. For example, if a Christian woman marries an unbelieving husband, she thus is portraying the image that the church is married to an unfaithful and unrighteous savior. If a Christian man takes an unbelieving wife, he is portraying Christ as the one who does not redeem and sanctify, but leaves his church in a dark and unregenerate state. He portrays his savior as one who really cannot and does not save, but allows his bride for whom he died to enter into everlasting hell. Either way, the picture is distorted and Christ is dishonored. Christ has come to redeem a bride for himself and to sanctify her, that we would be spotless one day. And we as believers, we in turn respond to God's love in Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to him in faith and obedience. We marry in the Lord because our bodies belong to God. He has purchased us with his blood and we are not to be united with those who are of the world. Again, 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine: a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only, only in the Lord. In our culture where everyone gets to do what's right in their own eyes, our church has to remain committed to keeping our future marriages pure and lawful. God has given this congregation in many ways a good start. And we've, we're only one generation into this church. We're about 30 plus years. So a little over one generation. And we will likely have tests ahead of us in the coming years. And we need to see where our hearts truly are, whether they're with God or not. And one of the great tests of one's own heart is when it's tested by our affections for others, whether it be a friend or our own children. And Christ must always come before everyone else, friend or children, friend or family. Our hearts always must be with the Lord above all. So may the Lord give this congregation faithful and prosperous marriages rooted in a common unity in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.